We really believe in the scriptures here. We study God's word. We believe it to be true, inerrant. We believe it to be profitable for everything. It's a searchlight. It searches our hearts. It equips us. It tells us where we're wrong. It encourages us where we're right. It discerns things that we cannot discern. It undoes things that need to be undone, and it seals things that need to be sealed. There are churches that teach from the Bible, churches that teach about the Bible, and there are churches that teach the Bible. Okay, we desire to be a church that teaches the Bible. We just teach it as truth, verse by verse, line upon line. We're in Revelation chapter 3 today. And as we've been studying the book of Revelation, God has been giving to us his heart for the churches, for the local churches there in Asia Minor, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Jesus saw the churches as they gathered. There were seven of them in number. We've studied four. Tonight will be five. Two more will ensue. And every church we look at, we see God's heart, we see their heart, and we can also see a reflection of our own heart. And so tonight, my goal is that we would lean into the things of God and see what was going on 2,000 years ago in Turkey, but that we also would have the ability, the willingness. And I think you guys do at 6 p.m. on Sunday night, and you're at a church in a warehouse with a guy with a beard way too big for his body, listening to the Bible being taught. I believe you guys want to grow. You want to lean in, Lord, what, what, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? And we get God's word from the Bible. See, God says of his Bible that he has elevated it even above his own name. That when all things pass, everything fades away, his word will never fade. And so we're so privileged tonight to study his word, to get into it. And so I'm going to pray real quick, and then I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and we're going to let the Lord do work. Would you bow your heads? Father, in Jesus' name now, we are going to study your word for the next 25 minutes. And I pray in Jesus' name that as we do that, you would be honored. That, Lord, we would be edified. That the world, Lord, would be blessed through us. That tonight, every young person here, we got some visitors from Dallas, Lord, so thankful for their youth group coming over to the coast today and coming to church tonight. And I pray in Jesus' name as they hear the word of God taught amongst the church of God, that they would see themselves as the people of God. And that we, Lord, would join with them in responding to you in the mission of God. What are you doing? What's going on in 2019? What's our part to play? What can we learn from the scriptures tonight? Holy Spirit, would you cut away the deafness of our ears? Would you soften the stiffness of our necks? Would you give to us a fresh heartbeat again? I submit myself to you, Lord, as a teacher, asking you to call me and use me and anoint me, and that we would all be blessed to be closer to you, more like you, more in love with you. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Did I mention we have journals? We have Revelation journals on my right and left. They're empty. They're blank. There's nothing in them but lines, a place for a date and a name. And I've encouraged people to take notes in journal while we're doing Bible study. And the reason I want you to take notes in journal is because if you're anything like me, God speaks to you, but sometimes you can't remember every single thing you hear. How many of you guys ever went to the grocery store without your grocery list? You end up coming home with a bunch of Cheez-Its and Pringles, man. You didn't do it right, you know. You go there with the list, and God's going to speak to you tonight. So even in the notebacks of your, or the backs of your chairs, there's little places to write notes. And the journal's up front, and the note's in front of you. Here's what I decided to do. At the end of Revelation chapter 3, the person who's taken the best notes, the most notes, the, the coolest notes, I'm going to buy a brand new iPad for that person. I'm not even messing with you. We're like three weeks away from a brand new iPad going out to somebody, okay? So I want you guys to be note takers. And the reason I want you to be note takers isn't just so I can give away an iPad, because that might be cool, it might not be cool. I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I haven't done it yet. But I want you guys to be lovers of the scriptures. I want you to be not just students 
with your intellect. You should be. But I want your heart to connect. Maybe not just even on Sunday nights or Sunday mornings, but tomorrow morning. I dare you to open up your Bible and on the right side of your Bible, open up a journal and have a pen and read and then write. Read and then write. The Lord will speak to you. He'll show you things. And make that a habit. Make that what you do as you relate to him on a deeper level. That's what we're getting at because we want to be lovers of, this, of the word, not just students. Let's read now verses one through six. Check this out. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, verse four, even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, amen. Well. I'll tell you what, as we've been studying God's word, the last two Sundays, we had some rough waters. The church at Pergamos and the church at Thyatira, they were the corrupt church and they were the compromising church. The churches that had gotten out of balance and allowed all kinds of chaos into their denominations and into their church gatherings. And as I preached those last two sermons, man, I had to say some hard stuff, some truths out of God's word, and I couldn't just pick friends over allies, and I couldn't just pick my truth. I had to just read the truth, and I'm kind of interested to see who's at church tonight, who came back to church after the last couple messages but as I study this portion, not the compromising church, not the corrupt church, Thyatira and Pergamos, but the church at Sardis, I was even more scared to preach this message. Because you see, within this church and within this scan, Jesus looks at it. He doesn't identify any compromise, no corruption, no immorality, no idolatry, no bad doctrine. Okay, the church wasn't being led by Jezebel or by, by the Nicolaitans or by Balaam. None of that stuff had crept in. Jesus looks at this church. He says, wow, you guys have a reputation that you're alive. You look like you're alive. You actually think you're alive. Everyone thinks you're alive. But I just did a scan and y'all dead. Can you imagine that when this church got their letter? All the churches got a letter like, oh, Sardis got a letter from Jesus. We got a letter from Jesus. You know, and they're, they're reading it like, what did Jesus have to say? And he said, you're dead. Like, what? Like, pass, give us another letter, you know. That's not a good report. And see, here's the deal. Let me make sure you understand Sardis. They were a church 2,000 years ago, and we can lean in and look down at their denomination and their report, and we can learn from it and apply it to our own lives. Let me make sure you guys write this stuff down. These are three principles for Bible study. I taught these to my kids a couple of days ago. We were in the driveway going over Daniel chapter one. And before I taught Daniel chapter one, I taught my kids three Bible principles as you study through the scriptures. Number one, the first question you ask when you're reading the Bible, what does this say about God? What does this reveal about his nature? He's the first and most important person to talk about when you're reading the scriptures. And if you get that foundation figured out, what does this actually reveal about God's character and what's going on? Then you'll be able to build upon that to the third question, which we're gonna get to in a minute, our most favorite question, but the first question is more important. What does this say about God? We're gonna talk about God and Revelation in a minute. The second question when we're studying a portion of scripture is to ask this question. What does this say and reveal about the people of God? 
What does this say about Sardis and what went down there? What can I learn from their lives? Or if you study Abraham or Daniel, all these guys and gals that lived in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can learn from their life because I'll tell you what, you learn from mistakes, don't you? But you don't have to learn from your own mistakes. You can learn from somebody else's. That's smarty pants stuff right there. Read the Bible, find out what other people did wrong and learn a lesson. The third and our most favorite question as Americans, what does the Bible not say about God? What does the Bible not say about them? Here's our favorite question. What does the Bible say about me? I want to apply it to my life. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I say? How do I think? You can only get to question number three, though, if you've navigated through questions one and two. Who's God? What's it say about him? What's his character? What's revealed here? Because once you get that foundation laid, and once you see how God has interacted with humanity over the years, then and only then can you say, okay, now I want God to show me how this applies to me. Now, here's my point. We've been studying through the book of Revelation. We're on church number five. And in every single church, the character of God has been revealed. Here's what Revelation tells us about God, if you're taking notes. Revelation tells us that God loves the church, that he scans the church, that he has a word for each church. He wants them to succeed, wants them to be blessed. He has a plan. He has standards of truth and error. He's the boss. He makes the rules. And the Bible says in each one of these books, I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. Now, if you know that about God and the foundation of his commitment to you, that God will never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he has a plan for you, he thought about you before the time began, he knit you together in your mom's womb, he knows you so well and he loves you, that's going to change the way you study the Bible. It's going to change the way you look at yourself in the mirror. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys ever have days where you're just full of stinking thinking, okay? You just forget what's going on, you think you're the worst, and, or you think everyone else is the worst, or you think there's no, no good future for you. I, I, I feel that way. I feel that way usually on Sundays at 9, 11, and 6. And uh, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I, I get overwhelmed. And God says, where are you going to find your truth, Luke? It's looking at who God is in the scriptures. The second thing that we learn about Revelation, it tells us that the church, okay, this is what we learned from looking at these churches, that the church is a hot mess, okay? You read the scriptures, you read all the scriptures, you find out that every man, every woman has some problems going on, okay? God is good, God's sovereign, God has a plan. You look at the scriptures, man, every church, these churches, they were upside down. And each church needed some encouragement, they needed some correction. Each church was in a battle, okay? Each church had some things to remember and some things to do. Each church was in constant growth and adjustment. And you can learn that about them. Then the third thing, our favorite question, what does Revelation say about us? Well, here's what it says about us, that we are part of that hot mess, okay? We're no different than the church at Sardis, church at Thyatira, Pergamos, Ephesus, Smyrna. We have all those same issues, trials, and pressures that they have. And God has a message for you tonight. It's either gonna be about himself, how he has dealt with humanity, or what he's speaking to you. Every single letter to the churches ends with this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's to mankind. Okay, it's not just a male, it's just a mankind, man and woman, anybody who's listening. This is good news, by the way. Okay, in a world gone mad where there's fights going on, chaos, everyone making up their own narrative, different stories erupting all the time, you need to know that you know that you know who God is. Look at verse 3. No, I'm sorry, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Stop right there. Eyes up here. Sardis, this is background historical information that is a little bit uh, germane to the story, but it's not going to blow your mind too much, but I'll just tell you quickly. Sardis was located right in the middle of these other churches, and in that postal circuit, they would have been in order. 
And as Sardis was located right in the middle there of modern-day Turkey, the elevation of Sardis was about 1,500 feet higher than the rest of the churches. Okay, they were up on a hill. And up on that hill, they had these cliffs that would protect them on three full sides. And the back of their church, or the back of their city, I should say, was also protected with a hillside. They were impenetrable, at least so they thought. Sardis as a city and Sardis as a church was in this way situated where there was five different roads that came into Sardis. So there was trade routes and commerce and egress and access, and it was a big city. There was a military compound there. Check this out. This is nuts. Before this letter was written, Sardis was so powerful so protected, so strong, that all of the kings of the world would bring their wealth and invest their money from their countries into the bank at Sardis. Okay, they didn't have the U.S. Bank and, you know, uh, Bank of America and Chase. They didn't have all that stuff back then. So guys with massive amounts of gold and wealth would come to Sardis and it would be kept safe there. It was so rich. So imagine that. You're higher than everyone else. You got cliffs protecting you. You got all these roads that access egress and commerce. You got all the money in the entire world there. You're going to accidentally think you're too legit to quit. You're going to think you're pretty hot stuff. You might not have immorality. You might not have idolatry. You might not have all of the bad doctrines that other churches had. Here's the problem. You were so well put together. The church was, and so was the city, that they'd come to a place in their navigation and maybe their operation. Listen, this is scary. They didn't need the Lord anymore. They didn't need him. And you know what really bothers me and maybe the Lord is that they didn't need the Lord and they were just fine with it. Jesus scanned that church, the church at Sardis, and he says, you guys have a good reputation. Everybody actually thinks you're alive. You actually think you're alive. <laughs> you guys actually are. You got your budget met. You got your buildings paid for. You got all these things. You got committees. You got elders. You got all this stuff, but you're dead. See, he's describing a church, and we actually still use that term, don't we? You ever heard of a church been labeled a dead church? That church is dead. I go to a dead church, or I, I, my parents go to a dead church, or I went to a church and then it died. And it's the right term. As a matter of fact, 3,500 churches per year in America alone, 3,500 churches die and actually sell their buildings and do not exist anymore. Now, let me make sure you hear this because I actually believe that that's part of the life cycle of a church. I think each church has a time cycle, and it's okay when churches die. It's not a bad thing. It's a bad thing when churches die and they don't know they're dead. Okay, there's a big difference. When churches die, you can celebrate. Oh, that was so cool. But now we're done. Next generation. Next group. Are they going to do things the same way we did? I hope not. This is what churches do. We're going to pass off the baton to the next generation. Make sure you did it like they did in 1732 when I was born. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to do it this way. No way, dude. God raises up men and women to lead ministries and cause movements. And those movements then become powerful and used by God. Sardis, though. Man, they had things going on where the Lord says, you guys have a reputation. On the outside, you're looking good. And here's the point. I could teach you guys about Sardis, and you might sit there, and your brains would swell, and you might get some information. What I really want to do is give you guys something to take home for your own life. What does this mean for you? How are you going to process this? How am I going to process this as I go home? What part of Sardis needs to go through my mindset as I consider God's heart towards me and as you consider God's heart towards you? Let me just tell you what was happening. On the outside, they looked good, but the inside, they were dead. Okay, we call this a reputation. And Jesus even said the outside is all put together, but the inside is not doing well. Now, here's the problem is we do this. We look at people's outside, and we judge them, don't we? 
We see what's going on and we can ascertain that guy has it all put together. That gal knows what's going on. Or we look at somebody and we do a scan on the outside and we say, man, that person's life's falling apart. You can just tell by looking at the car they drive, where they live, the job they work. And we just, do we not judge people on the outside? This is so cool. God emphatically says, I do not do that. I do not judge the outside. This is important, by the way. Because if you're here tonight and your outside is actually all jacked up, Okay, this is South Beach Church, so most of y'all are pretty jacked up. Bunch of knuckleheads and overcomers here. During our 8.30 prayer time, somebody said this church is like the church of the overcomers, you know. And, and, and they didn't say knuckleheads, but that's what I, I kind of filled in the blank. And, and by the way, I'm the president of the overcoming knuckleheads, okay, just so you guys know. So it's not, I'm not a condescending slam to you. I'm like, let's do it. Here's, here's my point, though. On the outside, the world can look at you and say, dude, I don't really know. You're all messed up. And yet the Lord can say, that person's heart is so pure towards me. They might, they might be messed up. They might be in debt. They might be depressed. They might be all kind of damaged, okay? But their hearts can be for the Lord. This is so cool. What if we decided to not judge people on the outside? What if we decided to let the Lord show us and just give people the benefit of the doubt? Here's the other converse side. Somebody can be all put together. They can have all systems banging hard and they got the house and they got the spouse and they got the kids and they got the boats and they got the vacations and they got all the stuff and whatever is going on. And we're like, man, that guy has it. That gal has it. And the Lord would say, really? You think that? Man, they're deader than a doornail. There's nothing going on inside that heart. Let me just give you a couple proof texts. In the scriptures, 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 14, that's actually chapter 16. Samuel the prophet goes to Jesse's house to pick the next king. And he shows up there and Jesse says, oh, you're here to pick one of my sons? Well, obviously it's this one that's well built. He's high, he's tall, he's broad-shouldered, he's the oldest. You're gonna pick him, right? And Samuel the prophet's about to anoint him and the Lord says, no, not him. He's been rejected. What? Sorry about that, bro. Try again, you know? And he goes, well, how about the next son? And he goes down the line. The next son's a little shorter, a little younger. The next son, he goes through five sons and there's no more sons. And Samuel's like, you got any other sons? You got like a foster kid or adopted kid? What do you got, you know? What else you got? You got a cousin? And he's like, no, man, that's it. He's like, well, I, yeah, I, I do have another son, I guess. He's, he, he's the runt and, and he's out in the field watching the sheep and he just, he loves sheep and he loves to write poetry and he dances and it's not dances with wolves, it's dances with sheep, David. That's his name, his name's David. And he describes him to him and Samuel says, that's the one, that's the one. Here, here's the verse and I'll read it to you. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance, this is Eliashib, the oldest one, or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, this is such good news. If your outward appearance or the people you roll with are kind of beat up on the outside, things aren't going great for them, that's okay. I have actually been around people whose lives on the outside have fallen apart and are falling apart. And yet, listen, their hearts are warm towards Jesus. This is what you really want in your life. You want a heart that's warm towards Jesus. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have everything on the outside put together. That's okay, you can totally do that. But if your heart is far from the Lord... You've lost everything. And Jesus here looks at Sardis and he says, guys, I, I see your reputation. But you know what you need? You need the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, look at verse three. This is, I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Look at verse one of chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus self-identifies with a new name for himself to every single church uniquely based on what they need. 
to the church at Ephesus. He was the one that was at the church. Remember, they'd forgot about him. He said, I'm in the midst of the lampstands. To the church at Smyrna, they were the persecuted church. He said, I'm the one, I got killed too and I'm alive again. I know what it's like to be bullied. To the Pergamos church, he said, I'm the one with the sword coming out of my mouth. I'm the one with the word of God. That's what you guys need. To the Thyatira church, he said, I'm the one with fire eyes and brass feet. I ain't moving. You guys need to get on my level. And he said of himself what they needed to hear to this church that had no pulse. He said, I am the one who is the seven spirits of God. I have the seven spirits of God, and I hold the seven stars. Now, we studied this earlier. There's only one spirit of God. You guys know that, right? Okay, but in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2, there are seven attributes of the Holy Spirit listed. It's the fullness and the character of the Holy Spirit. It's everything that the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus says of himself, I'm everything that the Holy Spirit is to you. I'm not the fruits of the Holy Spirit. There's nine of those. That's in Galatians chapter five. But I am the fullness of the Holy Spirit because you know what you need in your life more than anything else? You need more Holy Spirit. That's just the bottom line. You need more Holy Spirit. Well, I think I need more money. Well, no, you don't need more money. I think I need, you know, I need a better spouse. No, you don't need a better spouse. You know, I think I need less kids. I need more kids. I don't need any kids. You know, I, I, need, I need all that. You don't need all that stuff. What you need is more Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to this church, you know who I am? I'm exactly what you need. This would have been refreshing to them and make sure that you also hear that for your own lives. Because I'm sure that this church started out right. Remember what Jesus says, his commendation to them or his, his counsel to them, I should say. Remember how you heard, how you received. There was a moment in their life where these guys were spirit-filled. Okay, we just, we'd know it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. There was a moment where they were tuned in and tapped into the things of God, yet they had drifted based on their successes. Here's something else that Jesus says to them. He says, I'm the one that holds the seven stars. Now, I don't necessarily know what that means. We know from the scriptures that the seven stars were the pastors or the angels of the churches, and maybe he's saying, I got the whole leadership team in my hands or whatever he was saying. I do know this, though. Check this out. This is crazy. In that day, Flavian Domitian was the ruling emperor of the world, and he was a gnarly guy. He's the one who banished John to the island of Patmos to kill him. He was the one who tried to take him out and was, was persecuting the church. And he was so crazy in his Caesar rulership that he actually proclaimed at one point, I am now God, that's what he said, and I am ruling the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I've had a pride complex every once in a while, I thought I was pretty cool, but I've never claimed to rule the heavens and the earth. Can you imagine, like, what are you eating for breakfast, bro? And so he had minted there in Sardis for the very first time a coin with a Caesar on the face. Go ahead and put that up there. Let's see what's going on here. Look at that. That's Flavian Domitian right there on the left, and that's him on the right sitting on top of the world with those seven stars uh, rolling around him out of his hand. And he had claimed, I'm ruling the heavens and the earth. And here Jesus shows up to Sardis, and he's like, hey, what you guys need is the Holy Spirit? And just so you know, I'm the one with the stars. I'm the one with the stars. And I don't know if Jesus was making fun of Domitian. That's kind of a stretch, but I don't put it beyond my Savior to do something because he's a pretty funny guy. And Jesus says, I'm in charge. You can take that down. That's pretty funny. By the way, if you have one of those coins in your collection and you want to get rid of it, you can give it to the church. We'll take that for you. We'll take that for you. And uh, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm going to keep it. No, give it to me. But I'm just kidding. Anyways, keep reading. Keep reading. Here's what Jesus says to him. He says, I know your works. Verse 1 again. You have a name that you're alive but you are dead. He says to them, what you guys need is you need the Holy Spirit to fill you. Now, D.L. Moody, there's a story that has been told about him, the great evangelist, that in his life things were going good and his ministry was growing, but he received a word from some old ladies that said, you know what you need? You need the Holy Spirit. And he kind of looked at them funny, like, I'm pretty sure I have the Holy Spirit, and, but he believed their word, and so he locked himself in a hotel room for three nights. And he said, Lord, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And until you give me the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not coming out. And as the story goes, the Holy Spirit descended upon D.L. Moody in such a way that on that third night, as the Holy Spirit was pouring himself into this man, he cried out for the Lord to stop. You've got to stop. You do anymore, you're going to kill me. This is crazy. And he received the power of the Holy Spirit, and his life and his ministry was never the same again. Now, hear that story. I've told that story dozens of times. And here Jesus says to this church, you know, you need the Holy Spirit. And as I was putting this together, I was comparing my life to the church of Thyatira and Pergamos, the sexual immorality and the corruption and compromise and letting the Lord search my own heart, which is what we do, Lord, search my heart, okay? And, and, I, and I let the Lord do that and correct me. And then I read this portion, the Sardis church with the heartbeat that's not there and the Holy Spirit that's missing. It's even more scary for me, like, Lord, Lord, I need more Holy Spirit. I need more Holy Spirit. That's what I want. That's what I desperately need. Lord, would you make it true in my life as well? And I'll tell you what, I've heard stories before by the dozens. People come to South Beach Church and they walk in those doors, visitors or, or people that have gone here for many years or, or people looking for a church and they say, as soon as I walked in the doors, I just felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. As soon as I walked in the doors and during worship, I just felt God's presence and during the teaching, I was anointed and I just, I feel, and I hear those words and I just want to cry because I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. That's why we're here. If the Holy Spirit's not here, okay, I'm not showing up anymore. Just in case you wonder where Luke Fischette went, when the Holy Spirit stopped being here, I ain't showing up again. I'm gonna go chase him. And the Holy Spirit is here. And have you been to a church before where the Holy Spirit isn't there? Now, we don't judge the outward appearance because you can easily judge a church that doesn't have a nice building like our super, super nice building. <laughs> have you seen our porta potties outside? They're pretty nice. And you can judge a church that maybe doesn't have, you know, a parking lot full. And I've been to churches with just a few people. I've been to churches where I didn't understand one word. I've been to bilingual churches, I've been to foreign countries, small churches, and you can sense and feel the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I've also been to churches where I looked around and said, this isn't a church, y'all. This isn't a church, and not anymore. It might have, might, might have been when John Wesley went here, you know, when he founded it, you know, and John Calvin, you know, back in 1500, you know, and when those guys, but it's not a church anymore. Well, what we need is the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us. Look what Jesus says. He gives them a rebuke now. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Jesus gives them this recognition. He says, watch, wake up, get after it, open your eyes. Which, by the way, historically, Sardis was, again, positioned on a hill. They were impenetrable. And twice in the year 500 B.C. and again in the year 400 B.C., thereabouts, they were taken over by enemies. They were coming after them. Here's why. Because they were sleeping. They thought they were so legit, the guard just went right to bed, and these soldiers came up this little passageway and walked right into the city in the middle of the night. No way, they're all sleeping. Went on the other side, opened up the gates, and took over Sardis. Jesus here says, hey, church, wake up. Look around. What in the world is going on? Now, here's the scary part. They had everything together. Books balanced. Budgets met. Maybe even the bodies were there. Maybe they had the ice cream social and they had the, you know, gathering every year and they had some stuff, but there was no life in that church. Nobody was getting baptized, I presume. No dedications, no salvations, no mission trips, but they were there. You got to pinch yourself and say, Lord, don't let that happen in my own life or in this church. Be watchful, he says. Verse three, he says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I want you to remember how you heard. He doesn't say what you heard. Let me make sure you understand the distinction. You see, what God has shared with me and you in the past is legit, right? It was awesome. It was the manna of yesterday. 
and it was awesome. But if you're going to the future based on your history alone, there won't be enough in your future from the history alone. You need a fresh word from the Lord. How are you going to get that fresh word from the Lord? By remembering how he spoke to you, not what he spoke to you. Let me qualify that. Did you know there are denominations right now, 200, 300, 400 years old, that are proud of what happened 400 years ago, of their founding fathers, John Wesley and John Calvin and Martin Luther. Man, those guys were so good. Cool, cool. Are you doing what they were doing? No way, not even close. But they did it. And now we have these huge auditoriums that hold 4,000 people. What? How many people go to church on Sunday? 20. What? And there are denominations and churches. And you could find yourself becoming a crusty Christian with some great historical stories. Any crusty Christians here with some great historical stories? I'm one of those crusty Christians, if I'm not careful. I got great historical stories where God has done something. You know what Jesus says to me? Wake up and remember how you heard and repent and do it again. Because how those things happened in the past was Jesus was lighting a fire in me. How did you read the Bible when you first got saved? How did you journal? How did you pray? How did you go on mission trips? How did you serve? How did you give? How did you, how did you be involved? How did you care and carry the mission of Jesus? And if you have a bunch of stories like I do from 10 years ago and 15 years ago and 20 years ago, awesome. I want new stories. I want fresh stories, Jesus is saying. Remember how, verse three, right in the middle, he says this. Remember how, and he says, uh, hold fast and repent. And if you will not watch, he says, I will come to you as a thief in the night, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Stop right there, eyes up here. This is the second mention within our study, the book of Revelation, of Jesus talking about his return. It was to the last church and to this church. I believe historically these churches fit into a timeline that is congruent with our current age, and these churches are seen even in our current history. And Jesus is speaking to this church and to that church and to those churches. I'm coming back, guys. That's one of the things you need to focus on, my soon return. And he says here, I'm going to return, and you're not going to know it. It's going to be like a thief in the night. How many of you guys think a thief in the night's a good thing? It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. It means you got robbed, okay? You don't want a thief in the night to happen to you. There, check, this is crazy. There is a whole group of people in the world that when Jesus returns, it will be like a thief in the night where they lose everything and they don't even know what happened. A whole group of people. Check this out, though. There are also Christians Okay, that exact same event, Jesus returning, the exact same event will not be a thief in the night for them, but it will be a groom coming for her bride. Okay, this will be an event that we will celebrate and we'll anticipate and we will welcome. One half of the world will say, what happened? The other half of the world will say, look what's happening. Jesus says to this dead church in Sardis, guys, I got a timeline. I got a program. I will not be late. The problem is you won't be ready. He actually tells Christians, I want you to watch, to labor, and to make sure you're ready. Make sure your oil is full, your wicks are trimmed, that you're waiting for the bridegroom. This is a heavy. As a matter of fact, most commentators, when they study this church, Jesus gives no commendation, no gal, no boy. I, I see one in verse 4, uh, just because I'm nice, but most say he had nothing nice to say to this church. You better repent, you better hold fast, you better figure it out or you're going to get robbed in the middle of the night. Verse 4, read it with me. He says, you do have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus does say in this dead church, there actually are some live guys and gals, okay, which, which I, I concur with. I 
have been to dead churches, I've been around the world, I've traveled a lot, and I've seen pastors' hearts, and I've seen people in the congregation, and I've been mind-blown at some dead churches that don't even know the Holy Spirit's not there. They don't even know they're, a, they're not a church. And yet there are some churches, small in number, maybe even large in number, but there are men and women, good men and women, who are alive. God's positioned them there on purpose. I would say this, though. Jesus notices them. He knows them. He's able to discern between the goats and the sheep, the ones who are on and off, alive and dead. But I've been studying church for a while, and I, I believe that there is freedom within God's church to be led by the Spirit, to go where God wants you to go, to do what God wants you to do, and to bear fruit. See, John 15 says of the church, God wants you to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And all you got to do is examine your own life and say, am I bearing fruit in this church? Am I bearing fruit in this denomination? Am I bearing fruit in this life group? And let the Lord move you or prune you in order to bear more fruit. I've seen men and women, myself included, stay at a church that maybe is dead or dying or has some apathy. And you have to ask yourself why. In my own studies, it's been reasons such as loyalism. They're loyal to the pastor, to some families that they can't leave. They're just loyal. Okay, loyal, loyalty is a, a, a virtue. It is. Maybe it's traditionalism. Well, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm Foursquare, I'm Presbyterian. This, I'm just, this is what I know. This is what I've always been doing. Okay, that, that doesn't mean anything, does it? For traditionalism alone. Sometimes it's fear-based. I don't know what else to do. Sometimes it's family-based. This is where my family's gone to church. My dad was dedicated here. My grandpa was dedicated here. The dinosaurs were dedicated here. All, all this stuff was dedicated here, you know? And Here's what I would say, though. Jesus actually commends those guys and gals that are there. He says, I see you. You're going to receive a white garment. Good job. And for those of you who are watching online or maybe part of a dead church or you know people who are in a part of a dead church and you feel like God has you there, okay, out of obedience to him, stick and stay and make it pay. Okay, bear fruit there. But for others who are part of a church that is dying or dead or that the spirit's not there, I ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me freedom? Lord, would you lead me? Would you produce fruit in my life? Or I will die a slow death. And I believe God will give you the freedom. I remember back in 2000. 10 and it was March my pastor actually gave me freedom to, to pray about what God would do in my wife and I's life and we prayed and the Lord revealed to us to move to Newport and we actually moved to Newport nine years ago this Sunday today today's our nine-year anniversary of being here at South Beach Church you can clap that's okay praise God praise God and here we are studying the church with no heartbeat you know like, okay what's that mean Lord because I want the Lord to have access to my heart and I'm so thankful for the last nine years. It's been nuts. It's been crazy. I've been at almost every single service for the last nine years. I've seen this church grow. And yet, wouldn't it be a tragedy if after nine years now, we're, okay, okay, we've got some things figured out. We've got some bills paid. We've got some people on staff. We've got some things stocked and we're ready. Whew, all right, that was a good run. Let's coast. No way. Okay, let's stay hot. Let's stay open. Lord, what do you want to do next? in the next nine years. And Lord, if you should tarry the next nine years and after that when we're done, the next generation, what, what should we leave behind for them? And let's have that vision of heaven and of current manna. Jesus says, I need you to repent. Otherwise, it's gonna be like a thief in the night. I need you to stay on fire. Those of you who are part of the church, you're gonna receive white garments. Look at verse five. He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus speaks of white garments twice in verses five and verses four, which is, by the way, just crazy. 
Because white garments speak of purity and innocence. And there's not one person in the church of Sardis, there's not one person here that's innocent or pure by our own works. We're actually very illegitimate in our purity. And yet the book of Isaiah declares, though your sins are like scarlet, he says, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. How are you going to do that? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to the church and says, if you guys stick and stay, if you guys overcome, if you guys keep going, what I'm going to give to you is white garments to cover your nastiness. Jesus actually doesn't just cover our nastiness. This is nuts. He actually reaches into your life and he takes your sin from you and he bore the consequences and penalty. And he takes into his own accounts the righteousness of God and invests it in your account. It's called double imputation, where Christ takes your filth, your sin, your mistakes. He takes it from you, and he bears the consequences of death on the cross. And he takes his righteousness of a sinless life, a perfected life, and he shares it with you. And he clothes you in white. This is what he says he's going to do to the church. It's the gift of freedom, the gift of new life. Jesus' greatest deed was to cover our greatest need, our sin and our shame. This is what he says to this church. This is what he says to you tonight. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you've made mistakes. Jesus says, I want to cover those. He says in verse 5, If you overcome, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life, but I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. This is worth considering. Throughout the Old Testament... There are records of God writing down things. He has books of remembrances, books of records, books of names. Here it's called the book of life. I believe in all my studies, I've come to believe that there is many volumes that Jesus has, records of humanity. But this particular one is the names of the book of life. And in that book, everybody in the entire world, in the entire universe who's ever been conceived has their names written down. You know why? Because Jesus loves everybody, every single little conceived person. And Jesus writes their names down. It's called the book of life. He writes their names down because he loves them so much. And then this is what Jesus does. And then when you're born, he loves you so much so he extends himself to you in his creation. He says, this is what I made for you. Check it out. Four seasons. There's all kinds of cool stuff. There's an ocean. There's lakes. There's mountains. I did all that for you. And then he extends himself to us in his people, the church of God, the family of God. We just had a whole bunch of kids up here and pray for them. He says, I'm part of that group. And he extends himself to us in his son. He extends himself to us in his word. He extends himself to us, listen, in the people of God who are written in the book of life, who receive from him his invitation of newness of life. You know what's going to happen to them when they die? Their names aren't going to be blotted out. They're going to be left in there. Here's the awful truth, though. God in his kindness creates everyone writes down everyone's names, and extends himself to every single person through creation, through the church, through his spirit, through his word, and through his son. Every single person has an equal opportunity to receive from God, everybody. Unfortunately, not everybody will. There are vast droves of people who will say, no, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And those people... Jesus will go after again and again and again with an eraser in his hand, looking at their names saying, please, son, please, daughter, repent. And if you don't repent when you breathe your final breath, if you haven't applied the grace of God to your life, your name will be blotted out. I believe in eternal security that once you're saved, you're always saved, that once you're born again, you can't become unborn again. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Father has you, John chapter 10, gets a work up from above. 
and I believe I'm eternally saved. Isn't that cool? I, I believe I'm going to heaven. Like, you can't stop this. I'm going to heaven. I'm not so sure about you guys, though. I just don't know. I don't know what's going on with you guys. I want to believe the same. Ho hopefully you have that same confidence. I, and, I, and, I, and you should. Each and every one of you should say, oh, no, oh, yeah, I believe it too. You know, you should have that same confidence. Based on God's heart, based on God's character. And you should be able to, even in the midst of your waffling at times and your, your dirtiness at times. And as I studied this out, I wasn't really too concerned that I was the church at Sardis because I know the difference between being dead and being dry. Do you know the difference? Christian, do you know the difference? If you're a Christian here, you will go through and probably have gone through and maybe are in a dry time. It happens. It doesn't mean you're dead. Okay? The Lord is working on you and working in you. You know you're dead, though. Your spirit is not alive. And we can change that tonight. We can allow the Holy Spirit to save you tonight. It's what he does. He brings new life to people. Look at verse 5, though, and trip out with me just a little bit. Jesus says, if you overcome, I won't blot out your name. You'll be left in there, and then I'm going to confess your name before my Father and before angels. How many guys right now think you're going to heaven because you're a believer, okay? But when you get there, you're going to be kind of sneaking and hoping nobody sees you, like, no way. And you're going to just kind of blend in with, like, the people in the kitchen, like, doing dishes. Like, I made it. You know, like, I ain't nobody. How many guys think that of yourself? I think I'm going to be there, like, just kind of, like, numbered with the masses. Like, I can't believe I made it in. Hopefully they're not checking for tickets. You know, like, Jesus says, that's not how it is. See, we get this thing twisted. We look in our, our lives and our mistakes. And I'm going to have Pastor Ryan actually lead us in a song right now and come take us through communion. We, we, we believe the lies of the enemy. We think that... Uh, that the Lord actually doesn't like us. He doesn't love us. We think it's going to go something like this, that when we're coming into heaven, Jesus is watching the gates, and he sees me coming up the hill, and he's like, oh, yeah, here comes Luke. And the father's standing there, and he's like, that's Luke. Just let him in. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite exactly sure how he made it, but he made it. So he's, he's on the list. He's on the list here. And, and I get in, and then, and then Pastor Marty comes up the hill, and they, and they look at each other. He's like, Pastor Marty, too? He's like, yeah, Pastor Marty made it. I don't know how he made it either. And, 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 then, and then we think sometimes that Pastor Bo's coming up, and, and they both start looking. Pastor Bo? No, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Pastor Bo, his name's written right there. He didn't get blotted out, Pastor. And we think that sometimes. The Bible declares right here, verse 5 of chapter 3, that for the believers, because you see, there's not going to be a time rush in heaven. There's not going to be services where we go, oh, got to go, we got to go. It is going to be an exploration of God's goodness forever and ever and ever. And we're going to celebrate each other's worth and each other's value in the eyes of the king. And the Bible declares right here in verse 5 that when you enter heaven, Jesus is going to scream your name and the party poppers are going to go off and he's going to confess you. The Greek language here says he's going to boldly confess you to his father and to his father's angels. Here he comes! He made it! Woo! And it's going to be a party forever and ever. She made it! She overcame! Woo! And that's how the Lord looks at your life. Do you know what's crazy? This is how the Lord wants us to look at each other. Value each other. Celebrate each other. We judge each other on the outside. God says, I don't do that. I don't do that. I am looking at your heart. And right now, I'm going to ask God to search our hearts before we take communion. If you're here tonight, God is speaking to you. He wants to bless you. He wants to reveal himself to you. Maybe you're an older Christian here tonight. You're a Christian, but you're older, and you've been doing this for a while, and you got your boxes, you got your graphs, and your order, and you know what God does, you know what God doesn't do, and... And you got it all figured out and you don't even need the power of the Holy Spirit anymore. And you've drifted in that way and the Lord says, hey, what are you doing? 
The worst thing a church can do is look at their history and how God has acted in the past and then expect them to do the same thing in the current. If you read the scriptures, God doesn't mimic what he's done in the past. He is constantly fresh. He's absolutely dependable, but he is not predictable. He's completely steadfast and unchanging, and yet he's alive and active. And so would you repent with me, everybody, Christians and non-Christians? If you're a non-Christian here, Jesus loves you. He has written your name in the book of life, and he brought you to church here on purpose tonight to save you. And so, Lord, as we prepare to take communion, I pray for the Christians. I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and that you would open up our minds, Lord, and that we would be convicted tonight as you search Sardis. And you say, Sardis, you're a church, but man, you're dead. And Lord, I just, in Jesus' name, pray for my own life and my friends that are here, that you would search our hearts in those areas where we've grown lazy or apathetic, where there's dryness and possibly even death, the beginning stages. We repent. We want more Holy Spirit. We want the one who has the seven spirits of God to invade our life. If that's you, if you're a Christian here and you need the Lord to refresh you, to remind you, to give you fresh manna, would you just right now extend your hand upwards towards him by a, by a way of worship and invitation to him? Surrender, my hand is up to Jesus. If you're a Christian here, just tap out right now and say, Lord, I don't want to be a crusty Christian. I don't want to be a dead Christian. Lord, help me in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, would you descend right now? Anoint lives, young men's lives. Anoint the young women in here, Lord, in Jesus' name. Anoint the older men, Lord, and the older women in Jesus' name. Fill our dry bones. Do it work, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. We repent. You can put your hands down. And if you're not a Christian here, but today's the day you want to go on record and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to be born again. I want to live my life differently. I want to have a different perspective, a new desire. If that's you here tonight, would you right now extend your hand upwards? Just say, I want to be a Christian. Jesus, you see the hands. I don't even need to look. I'm not even looking. This is between you and Jesus. You extend your hand upward. Jesus, you see the hands that are going up right now. You see people. Do a work, Holy Spirit. Fill lives. Forgive sin. Keep those names written, not in pencil, but in Sharpie in the book of life that they'd never be erased. Raise up your hand right now if you want to be saved. The Bible declares that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead that you shall be saved he does a work in your life he does it for you you can put your hands down lord as we come to the table and confess that you died and that you rose again by taking communion lord we examine ourselves and proclaim your death until you return we do what we do now worshiping you expecting you to be honored in our lives and expecting you to honor us we thank you jesus bless this time now of celebration at the believers communion table in jesus name we pray and everybody said